Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine lecture series. In this lecture, we will discuss adhesive capsulitis, avascular necrosis of the shoulder, and some of the common compressive neuropathies around the shoulder joint. Let's start off with adhesive capsulitis. Adhesive capsulitis is defined as idiopathic loss of motion and pain in the shoulder. Most times the etiology is unknown. However, contracture of the coracohumeral ligament and rotator interval lead to pain and loss of motion. On biopsy of the capsule, there's fibroblastic proliferation. These fibroblasts lay down collagen similar to Deputrin's disease of the hand. This occurs most commonly in females aged 40 to 60 years old. It has been associated with endocrinopathies, including diabetes and thyroid disorder, as well as prolonged immobilization with the previous surgery. So first, let's go over some anatomy of the shoulder joint, particularly the rotator interval. What are the boundaries of the rotator interval? It is shaped like a triangle with the medial border or base of the triangle as the lateral side of the coracoid. It is bordered superiorly by the anterior edge of the supraspinatus, and the inferior border is the superior border of the subscapularis. The lateral apex or point of the triangle is a transverse humeral ligament. A key testable component is what structures are contained within the rotator interval, and it is the capsule, the superior glenohumeral ligament, the coracohumeral ligament, and the long head of the biceps. Patients with adhesive capsulitis usually present with pain and loss of both active and passive range of motion. They will have a painful arc of motion, particularly at the endpoints. There is usually a significant loss of external rotation. There are three clinical phases of adhesive capsulitis, including the painful phase, the stiffening phase, and the thawing phase. There is usually a diffuse gradual onset of pain lasting up to nine months, which is the initial inflammatory or painful stage. Following this, the patient will develop a decreased range of motion, which can affect all of their activities of daily living, and this is generally considered the stiffening phase. Finally, the patient will undergo a loosening or thawing phase with gradual return of the range of motion over the next several months, lasting up to a few years. Radiographs are usually negative, however, they may show osteopenia of the humeral head. MRI is sometimes useful as it will show a capsular thickening and loss of the axillary recess and a decreased intracapsular volume. The first-line treatment is conservative therapy, including anti-inflammatories, physical therapy, and corticosteroid injections. Physical therapy should focus on gentle, pain-free stretching, moist heat for an extended period of time, usually lasting approximately six months. This is sometimes called benign neglect. It is important to counsel your patients that adhesive capsulitis is a persistent process that can take a significant amount of time to fully resolve. If the patient has failed an extensive course of physical therapy lasting approximately six months, they may be a candidate for manipulation under anesthesia. This can be combined with an arthroscopic surgical release. If the patient has limited external rotation, a release of the rotator interval can be beneficial. And if internal rotation is the major limiting motion plane, then a posterior capsular release may be warranted. Many surgeons will perform a pan-capsular release in an attempt to regain most of the patient's motion at the time of the manipulation. Despite the treatment options selected, many patients will have a residual loss of motion in comparison to the contralateral extremity. Let's move on now to avascular necrosis. Avascular necrosis of the shoulder is a condition in which the blood supply to the humeral head is disrupted. With disruption of the blood supply, the cells within the bony matrix die, leading to subchondral bone collapse and arthritic changes. There is a variety of etiologies that cause avascular necrosis, but a helpful mnemonic for this is aseptic. A for alcohol or AIDS, S steroids, E 
Erlenmeyer flask, P, pancreatitis, T, trauma, I, idiopathic, and C, caisson's disease or the Benton's. So again, aseptic. AVN can also occur following a fracture, with four-part fracture dislocations approaching a rate of 100% occurrence of AVN. A displaced four-part fracture has a rate of 45% AVN. Valgus-impacted four-part fractures are much less likely to undergo AVN with a rate of approximately 11%. Briefly, let's discuss the blood supply to the humeral head. Historically, the blood supply to the head was felt to be the anterior humeral circumflex arteries. However, recent literature suggests the major blood supply to the humeral head comes from the posterior circumflex artery. Patients with avascular necrosis of the shoulder typically present with a gradual onset of shoulder pain, usually without an inciting event. They may complain of pain and loss of motion and crepitus with some weakness. A physical exam of your patient will show a decreased range of motion with some weakness in strength testing. Standard radiographic view should be obtained. Typically, with early onset, there is no evidence of subchondral collapse. The Cruz classification is based on radiographic findings. In early onset disease, radiographs are normal and changes can only be appreciated on MRI. Stage 3 disease demonstrates subchondral collapse, stage 4 has degenerative changes in the head, and stage 5 has degenerative changes on the humeral head as well as the glenoid. Progression of disease will characteristically lead to degeneration of the articular surface and arthritic changes. Radiographs of the hip are also warranted as these patients with shoulder avascular necrosis typically develop hip pain and avascular necrosis there as well. MRI is the preferred imaging modality and is 100% sensitive in detecting avascular necrosis of the humeral head prior to radiographic changes. Initial treatment is conservative with pain medications, anti-inflammatories, activity modification, and physical therapy. Early evidence of avascular necrosis of the shoulder may be treated with a core decompression. If the patient has subchondral collapse or stage 3 disease, they may undergo a humeral head resurfacing. More advanced collapse may require hemiarthroplasty. In stage 5 disease, in which the glenoid now shows arthritic changes, patients may require an anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty. Now let's discuss the rather infrequently encountered snapping scapular syndrome. Snapping scapula syndrome, or scapula thoracic crepitus, manifests as pain in the scapula thoracic junction commonly occurring with overhead activities. It can be caused by a variety of etiologies, including a scapula osteochondroma, or interestingly, an elastofibroma, which is a benign soft tissue located between the scapula and ribcage. These patients will complain of pain and popping at the scapula. They'll be crepitous with elevation of the arm. Plain radiographs may be normal, and a CT or MRI may reveal a subscapular abnormality or osseous lesion. First-line treatment includes anti-inflammatories and physical therapy. If the patient fails conservative therapy, they may undergo bursectomy with resection of the osseous lesion. Now, how about scapular winging? Scapular winging is usually tested in a fairly straightforward manner. It can be divided into lateral or medial scapular winging. Medial scapular winging is caused by damage to the long thoracic nerve resulting in dysfunction of the serratus anterior muscle. Lateral scapular winging is caused by damage to the spinal accessory or cranial nerve 11, which causes dysfunction of the trapezius. First, let's talk about medial scapular winging. As I said, this is caused by damage to the long thoracic nerve. So what cervical nerve roots contribute to the long thoracic nerve? C5, C6, and C7. And what muscle does the long thoracic nerve innervate that allows the scapula to drift medially when damaged? The serratus anterior muscle. 
There are several causes for long thoracic nerve injury, including repetitive stress injury found in weightlifters and volleyball players, as well as iatrogenic injury during surgery. Because the serratus anterior muscle typically pulls the scapula anterior and lateral or protracts it, when it's dysfunctioning, the scapula drifts medially and the medial border will elevate. First-line treatment includes observation and serratus anterior strengthening. This is typically done for a period of six months as the long thoracic nerve is just that, very long, and it takes a significant period of time to recover. If the patient fails to regain function after one to two years, they may undergo a pectoralis major transfer. Lateral scapular winging is caused from dysfunction of the trapezius muscle. Because of this, during lateral scapular winging, the scapula moves inferiorly and laterally. What nerve is damaged to cause this dysfunction? The spinal accessory nerve, or cranial nerve 11. When does this nerve damage commonly occur? Typically, this is an iatrogenic injury caused during a lymph node dissection of the posterior cervical spine. Treatment is typically done with observation. If they have failed conservative therapy and remain symptomatic, they may undergo an Eden-Lang transfer. In this procedure, the levator scapulae and rhomboids are transferred laterally. The important points on both of these are to remember both the nerve dysfunction and the direction of the scapular motion. Remember medial, long thoracic, serratus anterior, and lateral, trapezius, spinal accessory. Let's move on now to suprascapular neuropathy. There's two typical locations that are frequently tested for suprascapular nerve impingement, at the suprascapular notch and at the spinal glenoid notch. Compression within the suprascapular notch will lead to weakness of both the supraspinatus muscle and infraspinatus muscle. Compression within the spinal glenoid notch will result in weakness of the infraspinatus only. What associated shoulder pathology is found with compression within the spinal glenoid notch? And this is a slap tear resulting in a labral cyst which compresses on the suprascapular nerve within the spinal glenoid notch. What nerve roots innervate the suprascapular nerve and where does it come from off the brachial plexus? C5-6 and it comes off the superior trunk. And what is the anatomy of the suprascapular notch? The suprascapular ligament crosses the notch. The suprascapular artery runs above the ligament, artery above the ligament, and suprascapular nerve runs below the ligament. Remember, water over the bridge or artery above. How does suprascapular notch entrapment typically present? Patients will have deep posterior lateral shoulder pain with weakness in external rotation. In a thin patient, you may be able to appreciate atrophy in both the supraspinous fossa and infraspinous fossa. An MRI may show compression of the area of the nerve. This will also show increased signal intensity within the supraspinatus and infraspinatus muscle if the compression is within the suprascapular notch. There may be a ganglion cyst or thickening of the transverse scapular ligament. Nerve conduction studies are helpful to aid in the diagnosis. If no mass is seen on MRI, this can be treated conservatively with shoulder strengthening exercises. However, if there is a structural lesion that can be appreciated, the patient should undergo surgical decompression. Spinal glenoid notch entrapment presents in a similar fashion. The patient will have weakness to external rotation with their arm at their side, which specifically tests the infraspinatus. They may show infraspinatus atrophy. Supraspinatus strength testing will be normal. They may have a labral tear, which has created a cyst compressing the nerve in the spinal glenoid notch. Again, MRI and nerve conduction will aid in the diagnosis. Treatment is similar to suprascapular nerve compression. If a structural lesion is seen on MRI, it must be addressed. However, if no structural lesion can be appreciated, then the patient can be treated conservatively. 
If the patient fails to improve over one year, they may undergo a spinal glottoid ligament release and nerve decompression. All right, next up is thoracic outlet syndrome. This occurs more commonly in females, either from a neurogenic or vascular cause. Typically, thoracic outlet syndrome is caused from compression of the neurovascular bundle as it travels past the scalene muscles or by a cervical rib or a first rib. If compression manifests with vascular symptoms, the patient may have venous congestion or arterial ischemia in the upper extremity. If it manifests with more neurologic symptoms, the patient may have pain and weakness and sometimes nonspecific dermatomes and myotomes in the upper extremity. Provocative testing includes the right test, which is performed by abducting and externally rotating the neck away from the symptomatic extremity, which causes a loss of pulse. The ruse test, in which the hand is repeatedly opened and closed while holding it overhead. And the ADSEN test, in which the neck is extended, turned towards the symptomatic extremity, and when the patient inhales, the pulse diminishes. Imaging studies must include the cervical spine and chest x-ray to look for the presence of a possible cervical rib. First-line treatment includes physical therapy and activity modifications. If this fails, the patient may need a neurologic decompression, first rib resection, or anomalous cervical rib resection. Possible complications of vascular etiologies include emboli to the hands, causing ischemic damage. These patients need to be treated acutely with heparinization and three months of warfarin. Briefly, I would like to mention brachial neuritis, also known as Parsons-Turner syndrome. This typically presents with a sudden onset of intense pain followed by weakness in the upper extremity. Commonly, it affects more than one nerve branch in the brachial plexus. The weakness patterns vary based upon which branches are affected. Many patients will complain of decreased sensation commonly in the lateral antebrachial cutaneous nerve. MRI may show signals consistent with denervation of the affected muscles. EMG studies may show acute denervation typically three to four weeks after the initial onset of symptoms. Treatment is exclusively non-operative, and patients must be followed monthly, with approximately 90% of patients recovering full muscle strength and function after three years. However, you must counsel your patients that this is a prolonged recovery, and only 30% of patients will be fully recovered by the first year. Next, we will address quadrilateral space syndrome. This is a rare diagnosis that occurs primarily in patients 20 to 40 years old, typically engaged in overhead activities, and affects the dominant shoulder. What two structures exit the quadrilateral space? The axillary nerve and posterior humeral circumflex artery. What makes up the border of the quadrilateral space? Superior, you have the teres minor. Inferior is the teres major. Medial is the long head of the triceps. And lateral is the surgical neck of the humerus. Patients typically present with pain localized to the posterior lateral shoulder. This is worse with overhead activity and in the late cocking, early acceleration phases of throwing. Compression of the quadrilateral space is worse when the patient is in a maximally abducted and externally rotated phase of throwing. In a thin patient, you may be able to appreciate atrophy of the teres minor and deltoid. They may have tenderness directly over the quadrilateral space. Abduction and external rotation of the arm exacerbate their symptoms. Radiographs are typically negative, and an MRI is helpful in making the diagnosis. They may show atrophy of the teres minor or compression of the quadrilateral space. It may help to show any space-occupying lesion, such as a paralabral cyst causing the compression. EMG analysis may show axillary nerve dysfunction. First-line treatment for quadrilateral space syndrome is rest, anti-inflammatories, with most patients improving in 3-6 to months. A diagnostic lidocaine injection into the quadrilateral space may help to confirm your diagnosis. If the patient fails non-operative management, nerve decompression may be performed. 
Alright, so that concludes our lecture on adhesive capsulitis, avascular necrosis, and some of the commonly encountered compression neuropathies about the shoulder joint. As always, please check back for any updates on the topic. Thanks for listening.